Thursday, May 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool UK, making his debut on Market Foolery, Mark <laughs> Rogers. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Chris. Uh, so, just like Scott Phillips yesterday, he was uh, in town for Foolapalooza, our annual meeting, as are you, coming over from London. Yeah. And uh, But just like Scott Phillips, you were... At the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. That's right. Yeah. Um, which which we'll get to. one one housekeeping note. Uh, this podcast may go up a little early. This may go up on Wednesday if that uh, is the case. If you're getting us off of iTunes or Stitcher, and this goes up on Wednesday, because we're not here. Come Thursday, we're all heading off to uh, Fulapalooza, our annual meeting. All 300 plus or so members of the Motley Fool staff our two-day annual meeting. Uh, but let's get back to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting. It was your first time going. Yeah, I, I've wanted to go to this meeting for just about as long as I've been investing. So, you know, for, for years, you know, just about any young investor or new investor uh, in the UK, just like in the US, loves to read uh, Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letters. And so, um, as you can imagine, having been doing that for about 13 years now, uh, just so great to go over there and and to, to see all the places and... Um, all, all the things that we've been reading about for, for so long, um, it's really great to, to get over there. But you do realize that most annual meetings are just boring as hell, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I feel like the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, in some ways, does a disservice to other companies just because it is such a spectacle. It's true. And other companies, I, I, you know, for anyone, if that's their first annual meeting they go to, and then they go to any other company's annual meeting, <laughs> it's they're just setting themselves up for a total letdown. It's funny because Berkshire's my largest holding, but I have a, another holding which is about similar in size, and it's the complete opposite. It's a tiny family-run company. And uh, the, the annual meeting is literally just the members of the family set up. On, in their living room? It, it, is, it might as well be in their living room. It is, it is that down key. There's certainly no videos. There's no cheerleaders. Um, there is just a, a statement that lasts Wait a minute. About, cheerleaders? I didn't, David <laughs> Hanson, Scott Phillips, none of them said oh, anything about cheerleaders. Dancing dinosaurs and lizards and, uh, yeah, and the the... the I think the movie alone must have cost millions to put together. It looked like it was a Hollywood performance. It was Warren probably financed that uh, out of his pocket. <laughs> um, what's one investing takeaway you had from the meeting, whether it's about Buffett and his strategies or about his thoughts on the economy or different industries, that sort of thing? You know, the, the Q&A was, was really interesting this year. Um, and it took, actually, Charlie, Charlie Munger, to say it um, – the extent to which the comparisons between looking at at Berkshire's book value growth versus the S and P five hundred, you know, Warren Buffett, I, I think would absolutely hate to to say it because he's such a consistent guy over the years. If he has a benchmark, he's not going to change that. Um, but a question came up asking, you know, uh, is this still a sensible metric to use? And it was the one time in the meeting when Charlie got really animated and said, "I'll take this question. I'll take this one." It's insane to compare, uh, to, to use that metric, book value growth against the S&P now to compare how Berkshire's doing. And um, I thought it was a really interesting takeaway because, you know, things change. Uh, even a company as, as massive as Berkshire Hathaway changes over time. And as investors, we always have to, to be very wary of that and to understand that, you know, you, there are no... Um, you can't count on uh, on certain things just staying the same over over the course of time and and having that consistency. Sadly, well, and we've we've talked about that before. Uh, the idea that 
when you buy a stock, you should write down why you're buying it. You should have that original thesis so that you can go back. Because this has certainly been my case as an investor, and maybe it's yours as well, that there are times when I do get emotional about the companies that I'm investing in. Right. And it's I find it helpful to have that check and say, well, now, wait a minute. What were the business reasons for buying this stock? And are those still the case? Because as you said, that changes over time. I, I absolutely agree. And you know, you've got to be consistent and honest with yourself as, as an investor. And I think that's a fantastic idea, writing down you know, the reasons beforehand. But it's really interesting that because of change, you, know, you do have to, to, at least the way you're measuring that performance over time and the way that you're keeping the business accountable to, to meeting those standards, um, the reality of life is you know, so much happens that's unexpected and, and things do change so much over time that you kind of have to be a bit flexible in, in how you, you measure those sorts of things. But How did you get started in investing? You're a young <laughs> guy. You're what, 26? 25. 25. 25. Okay. So you're, um, so you're a really young I, guy. <laughs> I'm terrifically lucky to have gotten into investing as, as young as I, as I did. Um, in around about the early 90s or mid-90s, I'd say, we got our first personal computer in our, in our house. And uh, my dad, um, really interested in investing, um, not so great with spreadsheets and, and technology and setting stuff up. And so the way that we, we originally did it was um, we'd, I'd set up like a, a spreadsheet so he could keep track of his investments. And on a Sunday, we'd get the Financial Times and he'd call out the numbers of the, the stock prices of, um, of how, uh, how the shares were doing and, and I'd f- fill in the forms. And so uh, just as time went by, I started getting more interested in, you know, well, what do these numbers actually mean and, and why are they changing over, over time and, and how are things doing relative to our expectations and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, uh, it became like a great bonding thing between uh, my dad and myself. And that continues to, to the day, uh, to this day. Um, we were talking earlier in the week uh, over coffee. You were going to be the next person in your family to lead the family business. You had a family business. We had a, a, a family business that had been in, a, in our family for about three generations. Started off, um, the, the business is uh, film processing, so making the uh, turning old film into photographs. Of course, with the advent of the digital camera, that, that went pretty south quickly in, in the late 90s with a digital camera. And obviously, you, it's hard to imagine now in the in the era of Facebook that you would you know, physically get, get these, these photos together. You take right? your roll of film. Right. You would go down to the drugstore. <laughs> you would put it in a little paper bag. Yeah. Hand it over. And, and you know, and several would, days later, it would come back processed. Yeah. And, and we, we were in the business of, of processing the film and, and making the photographs. And so when that went south, uh, we ended up selling the business. And um, I obviously, my, my uh, destiny changed around about that point. I, I wasn't going to run that business. Um, but instead, with the money that was left over, I had a, a choice of what, what we were going to do about that. And so in about 2001, um, with a, a small-ish sum of money, um, I had a choice of whatever I wanted to do with it. I could throw a big party if I, if I wanted to, or I could buy a car or whatever else. And it felt like the most logical thing for me was to, to invest that money because, you know, at, at that age, at, at that starting point, that's a long runway to, to make, make the numbers work. With the with compound interest over time, and so uh, I started investing in around about two thousand and one with that money, and um, very passive to begin with. I was a complete novice, as you can imagine. I was about thirteen or thereabouts at the time, and um, uh, it was a slow start. And you know, d- 
doing it pretty passively to, to begin with. But as time goes by, you know, you, you take more of an interest in these things. And um, that was certainly the case with me. And um, the more I got into it, the more I, I started digging deeper and getting interested in sort of fundamental analysis and uh, coming to The Motley Fool. And uh, eventually it led to a very happy uh, coincidence that uh, as a result of being a member of The Motley Fool, I actually ended up joining the company, um, which was just over a year ago. So it's it's been a great ride so far. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you work on Motley Fool Share Advisor, right. uh, our service in the UK. I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, I should also mention you are part of the team, the Motley Fool Money Talk podcast team. <laughs> for right. those for those listeners who are interested in additional Motley Fool podcasts, yeah, I mean, I talk about where the money is, but we also have uh, our team in London doing Motley Fool Money Talk every two weeks. Um, and I have to say, one of my all-time favorite reviews on iTunes <laughs> is on the U.S. Uh, site of iTunes, which uh, someone wrote about Motley Fool Money Talk. It's much better than the somewhat juvenile U.S. podcast. And I love wow. it. Wow. Like, yeah, thank you. Amazing. Just, just you know, I, I bet... simultaneously praising you guys <laughs> and just kicking us. Wow. I bet Owen Benelak wrote that personally. He's our host <laughs> at uh, Money Talk, and that would not surprise me if that was him. For someone who is listening and thinking, you know what? I don't own any U.K. businesses. What, What is the business landscape like? What is the investing landscape like for someone who is just looking at the UK for the first time? Where are the opportunities? Sure. Well, if if you look at the FTSE 100, which is our big large cap index, um, you'll find a lot of uh, telecom companies, a lot of uh, large scale uh, oil and gas producing companies, so BP, Shell, but also companies like Vodafone on the telecom side and BT. Um, And there's... um, there are a lot of very, very large companies in there, which are really global companies rather than thinking about them as UK companies these days. But I think some of the some of our most interesting companies are on the consumer goods side. Uh, so we have Reckitt, Benkiser, and Unilever listed in in the UK, and um, for, for the same reasons that, that a lot of people talk about you know, in terms of finding quality businesses in the US, uh, the likes of Colgate and uh, and Procter and Gamble. Um, for, for alternatives, I guess, um, because they're pretty highly sought after, um, there are opportunities in the UK uh, for, for similar types of similar types of business with similar characteristics, you know, branding power, uh, the pricing that you can get over that over time. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting place to look. Um, so I, I definitely recommend looking through some of the individual large cap companies in, in the UK uh, for US investors. What are the companies that you find yourself gravitating towards? Where where are your interests as an investor? Well, I'm a bit odd, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I, that that's true in most things, but um, I I like looking for companies that are pretty obscure, that are doing things that are um, aren't necessarily the most glamorous. So um, one of my largest holdings is a company called Greg's, which um, when I made the purchase, when I made the investment, was deeply unpopular. You know, I couldn't I couldn't mention that investment to anyone without you know in the UK with people knowing what Greg's do, which is make pasties and unhealthy bakery food. Basically, um, it was just a deeply unpopular investment, and, and that's just the kind of thing that that I love to look for stuff that other people either don't like. Uh, it's not glamorous. They're not making something uh, that's that's looking to change the world necessarily. Why was it such an unpopular investment? Is it that the food that they're making is just sort it's, of looked down upon or yes. or was the business poorly run absolutely you know especially among big investors in the city they're not used to to pretty 
traditional, uh, you know, hearty English baked food, I, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's much easier to be, be attracted to, to some of the, the fancier uh, restaurant brands, let's say. Um, Greg's is, is really uh, right down the middle in the heartland type of, uh, of a company. And that's how it's that's how it's run. It's it's not really run for the benefit of the city, I guess. And that's that's one thing that's I guess put off some investors. But on top of that, they had um, a profit warning blaming. Um, we had some really odd weather in the UK last year. We had a heat wave, which when it's really hot outside, nobody is interested in in buying a sausage roll, for instance, or ba- or hot food. Sure. And there was also snow on the um, a, a few months before that, and basically they, they were blamed for for blaming the weather for for their results a bit and that that hit them quite hard so we have a lot of that going along uh, here in the u.s you with do. the winter we just had a lot yeah. of a lot of blaming the weather you know you do have to be careful with that i i think um it, there's, there's there's a good reason sometimes for for weather genuinely affecting results and it's difficult for investors to to separate what they're being told because management it's an easy thing to do to, to blame the weather for why sales aren't 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 as great in one quarter to the next but in, in the case of Greg's, I thought it was pretty clear looking at um, even like geographically how the stores were breaking down, how the performance was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty clear the weather was actually having a pretty serious effect. And um, it, it it's ended up turning around relatively quickly. But um, there you go. It's it, it was a deeply unpopular one at the time and probably still is. It's not glamorous. The thing about the weather that, uh, that always gets me is... Th- you know, as I forget uh, whether it was a movie or a TV show uh, where one character says to another, it's not that you lie, it's that you're so bad at lying. <laughs> and I feel that way about some companies when they talk about the weather as though we as investors have no other knowledge. We're simply taking what they say as gospel. I, appre- I Because you're right, the weather does matter, the weather does have an impact, but it's a lot more believable when for example, a company will say, well, look, because of this weather in this region, this affected us 0.2%, right. as opposed to other companies <laughs> saying, yes, our comps were down 20% because of bad weather. No, 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 no. <laughs> your, your comps were down maybe 1% for bad weather and then 19% for other reasons. But exactly. you, you can't write it all off on that. Absolutely. Um, one other business I'd love you to, to share a bit more about. You mentioned to me the other day. It's a company that makes elevator buttons. They <laughs> right. don't make the elevator. No. They, they make don't the, make the cable. No. They just make the buttons. Buttons for elevators. That, that's the family company I was, I was mentioning earlier that has the really low-key AGM. And that just, <laughs> says, that just says everything about the company. They are as you – know, it's, it's, people look at me strange when I say this, but boring companies really excite me. Because when you have a company that's doing something dead simple, but they do it really well and it's in a – very specialized niche. Um, that's an interesting place to be in, in my opinion. And the numbers certainly add up at the company. It's called Dewhurst, uh, and it's the Dewhurst family that runs it. Um, and they own by far the majority of the shares. And um, next time you're in the elevator, check out the <laughs> buttons. They might just have been made in a in a little factory outside of London by Dewhurst. You never know. I just love that the people who make the elevators, at some point along the way, they had the cables, they created everything, but when it got to the buttons, they said, oh, I, don't, I don't think we can do this. <laughs> Is there anyone who does this? Can we, can we contract this out? It's all right. Let's talk about ShareAdvisor, the, the service that you work on. 
two recommendations every month. Uh, Scott Phillips and I were talking about ShareAdvisor in Australia, whereas that is one Australian company recommendation, one U.S. company. For the ShareAdvisor service you work on in the U.K., it's uh, it's separated by growth and income, yes? Right, yes. So we have the ICE side of the scorecard, which is focused primarily on, on finding relatively undervalued, but most importantly, income-producing opportunities. So we'll have a lot of large-cap very cash generative, very generous dividend paying companies. In, James in Early there. does a bit of work. That's on this, right. Yeah? Yes, James Early is uh, he's in every meeting. You know, he's um, obviously an expert, probably the foremost expert. I, is that right to say? That probably the foremost expert here in the U.S. Uh, in the uh, at the Motley Fool. Oh yeah, yeah. at income. the Motley Fool. Oh yeah, not in the entire country. I mean, well, I you love, never know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think he, he might well be the foremost in the country because you know he's. He, he's that good. I mean, J- James is definitely the dividend dividend he's guy. He's the dividend here. guy here, right? Um, and, all, and so that's the that's the ice side of the card, right? And then the fire side is the growth. Is more like a, I, I guess, a rule breaking almost service, uh, and we're we're focused on, on finding growing companies, and we're not afra- we're not afraid of of maybe, um, in terms of valuation. Um, we're not going to be looking at it from like a value investor point of view when we're looking at these companies. And we're willing to pay up, especially if it's a high-quality business doing something really interesting and potentially changing and disrupting the markets they're operating in. Um, we'll have a lot of companies in there that are uh, really at the forefront, newer companies. Um, and we have Charlie Travers, who I, I know is a, another top rule-breaking yep. investor here in, at The Motley Fool, uh, working with us on that too. So um, it's, it's great to have a couple of... Uh, top U.S. Motley Fools uh, helping us out in the U.K., um, helping to find these these stocks and opportunities. I would be in big trouble with uh, Jill Ralph, our colleague who <laughs> runs operations at Motley Fool U.K. in London, if I didn't mention that uh, you should check out Motley Fool Share Advisor. You can just <laughs> go to fool.co.uk, and there's information about Share Advisor right there on the main page. Services beating the market, so uh, and and by a pretty healthy clip. So it's definitely uh, if you're looking for ideas, this is something Tim Hansen talked about last week about idea generation and how investors. Warren Buffett, he was using Buffett as an example. Buffett can farm out research, but the the Buffett's ability to come up with the original thesis, the original idea, right. is part of what sets him apart and really sets uh, great investors yeah, you, apart. You know, a lot of investors don't have the time to be spending hours and hours hunched over annual reports, uh, looking over what what would be a good idea and what what wouldn't be a good idea. And you know, it's it's fortunate because that that just happens to be what me, Nate Weissar, Nathan Palmley, everyone who works at Full UK loves pouring over the details and unearthing these opportunities. And especially if we can find something that you wouldn't have necessarily found on your own, then we're doing our job right, especially if it's a, a great company that um, that might just make for a great investment. Final topic, and, and then I'll let you go. Um, I was talking with uh, Jill Ralph, and I said, tell me something about Mark. Oh, that, boy. Uh, that it doesn't have to be about his work habits. It can just be about Mark as a person. And uh, um, actually, it was Brian Richards who said this, and Jill immediately agreed with him. Brian said, Mark has the worst diet of anyone I've ever met in my life. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. It, maybe this makes sense <laughs> that you're attracted to Greg's, the, the, you, the company making the unhealthy food. I found out that, what, I think. What, uh, what is your diet like? What's an average um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for you? Okay, so I don't eat fruit. 
I don't eat vegetables. Is that um, a, it sounds like a political that, stance. It, it's actually something I can't really help. It's like a digestive thing, but it's it, it's not entirely out of choice. It, okay. It's the same with uh, like uh, wine and beer. That that doesn't go well, but that's that's at least something unhealthy that I can cut out relatively. Okay. But um, yeah, I, I have a disastrous diet, um, and I would not recommend anyone follows me on that particular line <laughs> of advice. That's one thing where I cannot make recommendations on is is what to eat. So I will quite regularly sit in the middle of the UK office for whether it's breakfast or lunch, whatever time of day it is, basically whether it's like a giant box of chocolates that I'm eating or <laughs> uh, you know, a burger in the middle of, of the night or whatever it may be, people are horrified when I tell them what I eat day in, day out. It's, it, so definitely anyone listening, never follow me if I have any dietary advice for you because it's, uh, that will lead you. It leads you to ruin, I think. Unfortunately, the investing advice is worth it. Uh, <laughs> so check out Share Advisor again. It's right there, fool.co.uk. The information is right there on the main page. And give a listen to Motley Fool Money Talk uh, every two weeks. The Mark and Owen and the guys in London are cranking out that podcast. Great to get their view on investing and the world of investing. Thanks for being here, man. Oh, thanks so much. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Music.